Welcome to Water Talk from the University of California Division of Agriculture and Natural Resources. I'm Dr. Molly Kanoko, a Cooperative Extension Specialist in Soil-Plant Water Relations and Irrigation Management. I am Sam Sandoval. I'm a Faculty and an Extension Specialist in Water Resources. And I'm Faith Kearns, the Academic Coordinator for the California Institute for Water Resources. Well, welcome everyone to today's episode of Water Talk. And today we are talking about the food, water, virus nexus, as well as preservation of food. Our guest is Dr. Aaron DiCaprio, who is a Cooperative Extension Specialist in Community Food Safety located at UC Davis. Her expertise is in microbial food safety with an emphasis on foodborne viruses. Hello, Erin, thank you for joining us. Hi everyone, happy to be here. So to get started, we just wanted to ask some very basic questions that I think we're kind of thinking of as virus 101. So yeah, Erin, could you tell us a little bit, um, so what is a virus and what they are and what they are not and are they alive? Great question. I actually start most of my talks addressing uh, this very question. So uh, viruses aren't considered to be living organisms. They're obligate intracellular parasites, meaning they require a very specific type of host cell in a specific organism to be able to replicate or increase in numbers. Uh, they also, they don't have any type of their own energy generating mechanism. So there's no type of cellular respiration for, for viruses. So it's another one of those uh, distinguishing characteristics that helps us say they're not living organisms. Viruses can have either DNA as their genetic material or RNA. So that's another factor that distinguishes them from other types of living cells. Um, Coronavirus, for example, has an RNA genome, so it doesn't have any DNA um, in the viral particle. So these are all things that are unique to viruses and really help us make that distinction between being a living organism or not. Another question that I have just related to, to water and surfaces is just how do viruses move around? Like how are they transported? Do they do they move? through the water, like when they're on a surface, are they just kind of sticking to it? Like, do we know a lot about their actual motility? Well, I guess I should probably talk about the different types of viruses because I think this has a really big impact on how they persist in the environment and in foods. So there are two basic structures of viruses. There are what we call non-envelope viruses that are essentially just viral genetic material that's encased in a protein coat. Um, these are typically what we see the structure of food and waterborne viruses being. So these non-envelope viruses, they're really hardy in the environment because of their simplistic structure. The protein is relatively stable against some common sanitizers like alcohol-based hand sanitizers, for example. The other type of virus structure is what we call an envelope virus. So this virus has viral nucleic acid that's encased in viral protein, but then on the surface it has this lipid bilayer 
that we call the envelope that's derived from host cell membranes. And the virus, depending on the type of virus, will embed different viral proteins in that envelope. But because that's a lipid bilayer, it's much less stable in the environment. So envelope viruses typically we don't find persisting for long periods of time in water or in food or on surfaces. Norovirus is kind of our prototypical food waterborne virus. That's a non-envelope virus. Coronaviruses are envelope viruses, so we don't think they persist for long times outside of the body. There have been several recent studies with varying results. But I think overall, a few days of survival in the environment is kind of the maximum for coronavirus and similarly other envelope viruses. These viruses, they're host-specific, so the source is ultimately going to be us as humans, as carriers of the virus that shed it uh, in our feces, maybe in our respiratory secretions, which is the case with coronavirus. Um, there are... Some types of viruses that are also zoonotic, so they're, they're in animals as a natural reservoir and they can be passed to humans through you know, direct contact with those animals. Generally, non-envelope viruses that cause waterborne or foodborne disease, those are coming from people. And so the source is primarily untreated sewage or they can also be shed in the vomit of, of people that are, you know, exhibiting symptoms. So if that contaminated water or if there's a contaminated surface is contacted by a human hand and that hand then goes into the mouth, that can lead to disease. Or if a food were to contact that contaminated water or surface because these non-envelope viruses are so stable, if we then eat that food, we can also become sick. Uh, pretty much we have two, non-envelope and envelope, that's... Correct. Good. Basically, yes. And, and it, it, they really, those structures play a critical role on the environmental stability of, of the viruses. Non-envelope viruses, really hardy in the, in the environment, difficult to inactivate. Envelope viruses, they don't remain infectious for long periods outside of the body, and we can generally inactivate them with more mild sanitizers or heat treatments. Great, great to know. Um, so you know, Erin, um, I don't know, about a week or two weeks ago, I saw an article that you posted, I think it was on the SACBI or in one of the Sacramento magazines about uh, how can we ensure food safety with both our, our groceries and, um, and our takeout right now. So could you elaborate on that, please? Sure. So I've, I've been feeling a lot of questions related to food safety and, and SARS-CoV-2. So that's the virus that causes COVID-19. Given the state of understanding right now, um, there's no evidence of food or food packaging being a vehicle for transmitting uh, this particular virus. So SARS-CoV-2 is transmitted by respiratory droplets meaning that you know you have to be in close proximity to someone that's has an active COVID-19 infection and would be shedding that virus via talking, sneezing, coughing, 
and those droplets from the respiratory secretions would have to contact your mucous membranes for you to get sick. There's also strong evidence that, you know, just general close human contact can also transmit the virus. So you can imagine if someone sneezed on their hand, there could be infectious virus there. If you shook their hand and then touched um, your own mucous membranes, you could also, um, you know, contract the disease. Um, there's also what we, you know, consider high contact surfaces out there. So things like door handles or railings where there's high likelihood that a number of people are going to be touching that same surface. So you can imagine if there's someone walking around with a COVID infection, if they sneeze on their hands and then they touch door handle, someone that follows them might touch that same handle and then touch their, their mucous membranes and, and get sick. Um, when it comes to food, you know, generally that's not a high touch surface. There's not, you know, a high number of people in the grocery store picking up a, a can of soup or even, you know, an apple to check out, you know, if this is something they want to take home with them. So really, you know, foods are generally going to be a low touch surface. Um, so, you know, lower risk inherently there. Also, based on, you know, what we know, this virus does not seem to persist for long periods of time on surfaces. So even if you, you know, there was some kind of event where someone's stocking a shelf that had the infection sneezed on a can of soup, that can of soup's probably going to sit on the shelf for long enough for that virus to become inactivated. We also know, based on evidence with the original SARS, so I guess the one emerged in the early 2000s, and also other envelope viruses, that cooking temperatures are adequate to inactivate these viruses. People are concerned about food and food packaging potentially carrying these viruses. You know, overall, I think the risk is really low. You know, of course, if you're getting takeout and a delivery person was sick and sneezed directly on that package, potentially it could be there. Um, but really the key and, you know, it's general good food safety practice all along is to wash your hands after you, um, you know, handle any packaging, certainly before you, you know, eat any of that food. And, you know, that's part of the guidance around controlling for coronavirus is wash your hands as much as possible because we know that this virus has to get into your respiratory tract to cause infection. And one of the good ways to do that is make sure your hands are free of the virus because we touch our faces a lot. It's, you know, something we all do. I try and catch myself now, but I, uh, I do it quite frequently myself. <laughs> So speaking of washing your hands, I am a canner and I do preserve. So I'm kind of coming from that space, but I do wash my hands very, very fastidiously when I'm canning. And just thinking about the way in which communities are responding and families are responding right now. Many people are starting their own gardens. They're doing, you know, we're seeing like a resurgence in these like victory gardens. And I think the next step that's going to happen is there's going to be a lot of people 
who want to preserve their own food, who want to do some canning. And I know that you work a lot with the University of California Agriculture and Natural Resources Master Preserver Program. Can you tell us a little bit about that program and just what types of food safety issues that new preservers and new canners should be aware of right now? Great. Um, so yeah, I have the honor really uh, of working as the food safety technical advisor for uh, our statewide master food preserver program. Um, folks might be familiar with the master gardener program. So this is kind of a sister program to the master gardeners. Um, so this is a volunteer um, run and driven program and the mission is really to deliver research-based home food preservation techniques to consumers. You know, we, we teach a wide array of food preservation techniques, but I think probably the, the thing everyone's mind goes to initially when we talk about home preserving is canning. So in the United States now, we have a, a very good recent history of safety with canned foods, commercially canned foods. Not so much in the early 1900s. Uh, we had a lot of issues with um, botulism and, and canned foods, fruits and vegetables in particular, meats as well. And because of that, um, California, you know, kind of led the way in developing these regulations of how we produce canned foods to make sure that people don't contract botulism from canned fruits and vegetables produced in the state. After California kind of set these regulations in place, the federal government actually adopted the same regulation. So now nationally, we have very strict regulation of production of canned uh, foods in this country. And because of that, we don't have really any cases of, of botulism uh, associated with legally commercially canned products. And so, you know, one of the, the key things that we teach through the Master Food Preserver Program is how can I safely can foods at the house? You know, how as a consumer can I be sure that I'm using a recipe and a process that has been validated for safety? So our volunteers go through a really rigorous training program. You know, I give them um, information related to food safety specifically, um, but they also have hands-on labs where they're learning how to use the equipment to can properly. They get access to all of our research-based resources and, and recipes, and then they go out into the public and put on workshops on how to do these things safely. They also field a lot of questions on their helplines, so they've seen a real uptick recently in people reaching out with questions related to home food preservation, and so they try to help guide folks to, to where they can you know, find the appropriate, safe, tested directions for how to preserve different kinds of foods in the home. And I think that that uptick is just going to keep rising just based on the uptick that we're seeing and what is being planted right now. Uh, many of those, you know, items aren't coming up yet. Yeah, I think there's going to be a major uh, need 
for the the master food preservers to to keep doing what they're doing, but now in the virtual environment, right? Yeah, Erin, um, uh, speaking of uh, having this uh, closed environment and so on, uh, uh, I've seen that you have done quite a lot of work in norovirus, and I think this is also referred as cruise ship illness. What is unique to this cruise ship ecosystem that spread the illness? Mm -hmm. And are there any other ecosystems that you think that it can be referred to to this? Yeah, so I, I think with this virus too, we've seen that cruise ships are... <laughs> <laughs> kind of a, a hotbed for spreading infectious disease. And, you know, unfortunately, I think it's because of the, you know, high density of people in these locations, the close quarters that, you know, they're, they're all staying in. There's a lot of communal food and, and you know, social events that I think everyone realizes now is kind of this perfect environment for spreading an infectious disease. Um, so, so norovirus, yes, is known as the cruise ship disease. It's um, caused a lot of those um, ships to come back early uh, because nearly everyone on, on board has had uh, symptoms of nausea, vomiting, and diarrhea, which I can't even imagine what that environment is like. Um, so norovirus is actually a very infectious virus. Um, it's transmitted by the fecal-oral roots, so you, you actually have to ingest this virus to get sick. But we know for norovirus that you only have to ingest you know, one to 10 particles, viral particles to get sick. So you can imagine if there's one person on this, you know, cruise ship that's sick and they don't wash their hands adequately enough and they touch a door handle. Um, we know this virus can be stable for days, weeks, even months on surfaces. So then, you know, passerbys that touch that door handle then don't wash their hands before they eat, easily become infected and it goes on and on and on. You know, coronavirus, I think, you know, for this particular coronavirus, there's still a lot of unknowns. You know, we don't know quite yet, you know, how many of the virus particles actually have to get into your respiratory tract to cause disease. Um, you know, we're unfortunately, I think, going to learn a lot of this, you know, after this this pandemic is has kind of subsided. Um, but I think, again, you know, the outbreaks we've seen on cruise ships with um, COVID-19 really kind of emphasize the same thing that, you know, when you have a high density of people in a close space, you can really get rapid transmission of the virus within that population. Hey, Erin, something that I mean, as, as I am literally taking this uh, virology 101, so let me see if I'm I'm getting my notes right. So. We have envelope and non-envelope. So the envelope are not stable. What that means is that it will not last that long in the environment. Okay, now the non-envelopes, they are very stable. So careful with them. It will last in the environment. And then we have this kind of uh, contamination, direct and indirect. Surfaces can be an indirect uh, way to get the virus. So someone else is contaminated, you touch it, get your hands in your mouth and your mucus and there you go. Mm -hmm. 
And then the direct will be actually with talking with other people or being close. Now, cooking. You is highly recommended to cook because cooking, if you are worried about what you are uh, buying, that it will not that it will not get contaminated. And the other one is washing. So fruits, vegetables, get your wash them thoroughly. So whatever is there, it will get there. Did I get it right? Mm-hmm. Sorry, it was taking me. You're a great student. <laughs> <laughs> Aaron, just as somebody who's been studying kind of these viruses, and I'm just curious, like kind of from a more big picture perspective, like what you see as maybe unaddressed issues right now, things that are not sort of a common part of the dialogue or major issues that you see kind of coming up that will challenge our ability to, quote unquote, get back to normal. So I think that the hardest thing for me to see is kind of this promise that we're going to have a vaccine or an antiviral drug anywhere in the near future. This type of work is really hard. And, you know, I don't want people to think this is something that's going to be turned around in, in any type of quick fashion. And I understand anytime there's something new that people are proposing, you know, there's kind of this level of excitement. This might be the magic bullet that frees us. Vaccine development really takes years to get something that, that's effective. In reality, you know, getting more testing done is, is really going to be what, what helps open things up. But because we don't, we're still collecting information about this virus, we don't even know if you can get a second time and kind of how long, if there's immunity, how long does that last? So let me, let me ask you one, one last question here. Mm-hmm. So what would you like those uh, of us outside of the food virology world to know about what you do? Great question. So my research group, we primarily focus on understanding how these viruses end up in foods to begin with. Um, so we, we know that they can be in water that's contaminated with sewage, but that's not particularly of a concern here in the U.S., but we still have a number of outbreaks associated with these viruses. So we do a lot of work looking at, you know, how workers in particular can can be a source of virus. Um, We're also interested in understanding how norovirus, we also work with hepatitis A virus a bit in in my group, how long the virus persists in different foods. So if we do have, say, a leafy green that's contaminated with one of these viruses, how long will that virus remain infectious? in that commodity. And then we're also really interested in looking at how we can mitigate foodborne viral diseases. So what kind of control measures can we implement to help reduce risk? Are there different treatments that we can apply to foods to help eliminate these viruses? So this, you know, this is really something that we've been working on for a while. Um, We're of course, pivoting a little bit now to to try and start doing some work with coronaviruses. So there's a lot of just questions we don't have answers to at this point. And and USDA is 
put out some calls as well as other funding agencies to help us understand how long do these this does this coronavirus survive on foods or food packaging you know we're we're kind of pulling from data we have but we don't have that specific data set to say you know it only survives on the surface of an apple for 2 hours so you know we're we're starting to to work in that area uh, as well but you know something that i think is just so important right now is supporting our food systems. You know, this has taken such a tremendous toll on everything from farm to fork. And so, you know, I'm really interested in exploring ways that, you know, I might be able to help with my expertise, other folks that are working within the food system to, to help support these essential workers and support these businesses that, you know, many of which are, are struggling right now. Thank you so much, Erin, for joining us. I think all of us got some very burning questions answered today. Thanks for listening and join us next time on Water Talk.